Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the second elaboration on part three of the Vin Armani interview. So... Welcome. If you are new, go back to the beginning. The other disclaimer is that this podcast in general builds on itself. So if you are unfamiliar to some of the references and concepts and topics, then you probably missed something that you would pick up if you go back and listen to the rest of the podcast. The podcast in general is designed to be listened to chronologically from the very beginning up until now, only the current series, so to say, is one that is not necessarily of that nature. After season two, I've been doing a bit of an interlude, and this Dim Age series is in the middle near the end of that interlude before I start season three. Now, most of the content, though, is still fairly evergreen and will apply for a long time to come. But just to give you an idea of the layout up into now and why, if you feel Feel like we are talking about things and mentioning things that you don't really have a frame of reference for. That is why, because I am assuming that at this point, either you already know all that stuff or you have already listened to it and learned it. So whether you learned it from me or someone else, I'm just assuming that you know it. And if you don't, then I am providing a resource so that you can do that. And that would be the rest of the podcast prior to this episode in the series. So, moving on from there, I left off last time talking about the idea of the church as a self-organizing system and comparing that to corporations, and in the part of the interview that I am elaborating on, that I'm referencing here, was when Vin and I, or Vin, I guess, was bringing up the idea of the church and organized religion, and we made a comment about what Christianity really means from the way that we reference it compared to the the way most people think of it. And so that's where I want to pick up here. The idea of organized religion is one that is often synonymous with the idea of hypocrisy or corruption. And that is very different than what Venn would refer to as the original vein or true believers or pure Christianity or the early Christian church. And those are the ideas that Venn and I are talking about. We are talking about if you read the Bible and see what Jesus says and the early disciples were discussing, that is the ideal, so to say, that we are referring to when we refer to the church or Christianity or the original vein, whatever it is referenced as. That's what we're referring to, which is different. And the issue that comes up in the modern time is that although many people are recognizing that there is this spiritual void, this lack of morality and absolute truth in society today, they recognize this, but they avoid the, quote, church because they see the ambassadors and representatives of that church and recognize that they are corrupt or hypocrites. And that's not something that many people want to be a part of. That's not very appealing. And so that's a bit of a problem. Now, I will say that, like I had just said before, that is not the idea of the original Christianity. There's actually another parallel that I've recently kind of uh, thought about, I guess, in some reading that I've been doing. But 
if you look at the early disciples, there were 12 disciples that followed Jesus around, and one of those disciples was Judas. At least that is the way the name would be displayed in most of your Bibles. If you have a Bible that keeps the Hebrew name, like the one that I typically use if I am doing research in uh, studying the Bible, then the name is actually Yehuda or Judah. And that is the same name, yes, as the tribe of Judah. And so going back to the Old Testament, you had these 12 tribes. And over the course of the history of events, you ended up by the end of the Old Testament times with basically just one tribe left. The rest are scattered all over. That's the diaspora. And the tribe that remains would be the tribe of Judah, which is why we have the name Judaism or the Jews. It all comes from the name Judah, the tribe of Judah. Now, what had happened by the time of Christ is that Judaism that last tribe, the Jews, who were the leaders, the kings, came from the line of Judah. David came from the line of Judah. So that was a very important tribe, and uh, Jesus was a descendant of the tribe of Judah as well. But what had happened is that over time, what was left was the tribe of Judah, and they had become very corrupt. The way that they were practicing Judaism was not congruent with the original Hebrew religion. They had added on many things. They had interpreted things in different ways. They had all of these different laws and regulations and rules that didn't directly come from the scriptures. They basically, in a sense, wrote commentary on the scripture, then used that commentary to build even more rules and regulations, and it just ended up being a bit of a mess. And that is why Uh, John the Baptist, for example, calls them vipers and has some very harsh things to say as well as Jesus does. But the point is that the tribe of Judah had become corrupt and this religion that is not the way it was supposed to be. They had basically created a different religion than what the original one was, built on the same thing, roughly the same, but a corrupted version in a sense. And so then you look, that's kind of a macro view of things. And then on the micro view would be the 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes. And one of those disciples was said to be in charge of the money. He was, in a sense, the treasurer. And as we all know, the one who is in charge of the money definitely at least has a role of authority. That is not someone at the bottom rung. And this would be Judah. This would be Judas. And he was the one in charge of the money. And in the end, again, Judas is the one that ended up being corrupted. He was the one that turned in Christ. He was the one that gave into the adversary. In one of the Gospels, it says that the adversary was the one that initiated that. And so that would be the idea of Judah becoming, going from being one of the key disciples, one of the 12 disciples of Christ, learning directly from Jesus, being very dedicated to that, to being this corrupted version of that in the end. And then let's go back to the macrocosm here. And the same principle has been true of Christianity post-Christ, where the early church, what Vin and I are referencing as the original vein, they started off very pure, very 
tied to the teachings of Christ and the way that he taught and lived that out. It was very holistic. There are lots of components there that we would look at as probably very positive. And again, that has become something that has fairly corrupted from its original intent and purpose. Now, it is still built on the same idea, but in many ways, it's a different religion. It doesn't look the same as what the early church was. And so, and again, I'm speaking broadly, there are many different denominations, many different types of Christians, different sects, all this stuff. I'm not getting into all that. But from a macro perspective, this is a pattern that you can look at in many different ways, but that is causing a lot of issues today because as people search for meaning, for rules and regulations, uh, some sort of boundaries to their life, to their ethical opinions and beliefs and morality, to spirituality, all of these things. People are seeking these things, and they are presented in our current culture with two options, the kingdom of God, the original vein, the kingdom of light, the natural order of things, or the church of woke, the kingdom of darkness, the way where man decides his own destiny. Everything is created by man in the image of man. These are the two options for your belief system, so to say, your religion, your your filling of that void. And unfortunately, the representatives of the one side, the church, are not really representing very well, and that has caused some major issues here. Now, The key should be individual dedication, and individual dedication, if I myself am dedicated myself to this belief system, this kingdom, then that would lead to me being a true representative. It's this whole idea of... Uh, believe in God or believe in Jesus. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's not just believing that Jesus exists or God exists or recognizing that that is a true statement or believing that the Bible is true. That's not what it's about. It's about being a true representative. If you get totally involved with any movement, with any belief system, that becomes part of you and you become part of it. You meld with that. And again, I, Christianity is obviously our example that I'm going with through this whole series here. But uh, like everything else, you can apply that to other systems, other belief systems and other aspects. But the idea here is another one that is represented many times in the Bible of producing fruit or of what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. These are saying the same thing that... You can judge how good a tree is by the fruit that it produces. If a tree is producing bad fruit, it's probably an unhealthy tree. Just like if you are listening to someone speak and out of their mouth comes lies and deceit and ugliness, then probably what's inside of that person, that person's heart, probably matches the speech coming out of their mouth. It's this same idea that you can judge people by their actions, by what they actually do. It's not what they say they believe or what they say they are associated with. They say that they're a Christian or even the action of going to church. It's about their life. How do they live their life and how do their actions say what their inner being is? And 
that is the true representation of a belief system. If someone is fully into a belief system, it will be represented in their life. And that is why they would be known as an ambassador or a representative because they should be living that out. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but it does mean that it should be very obvious that they are a part of that system. And that is what is currently lacking in a lot of ways. But when you look at the Church of Woke and people that are very dedicated to the Church of Woke, to wokeism, to uh, transhumanism, to whatever aspect of this, the COVID cult, you know, whatever denomination you want to look at, they are very dedicated and they are showing it in their lives. They are the ones driving around in their car by themselves with their mask on so that they can show how dedicated they actually are. These are the types of people that are living out their belief system. And that is something that does speak pretty loudly. If I see somebody that is very authentic in their beliefs, and I see them living it out, and I see that their life is one that I would look at as a positive representation of a human life, so to say, then that belief system becomes attractive to me as well. It doesn't mean I'm just going to adopt it without looking at it, but that is something that would draw me to at least investigate. Whereas if I see someone that is not very authentic, that their words and their deeds do not line up together, and that their life is not one that I look at as being very positive, then whatever belief system they say they're associated with is one that I am not going to be very attracted to. Even if it's a really good system, because of what I have seen, then that is not something that is going to really draw me in. And so this is an issue that's going on here. Now, there is a phrase that uh, Van Armani had said that material things, that human systems always corrupt, they always decay. And this is very true. I think that is why you have the principle in the early church of not building your treasure and storing your wealth on earth, but you are doing so for the sake of eternity, for heaven, for others, for more immaterial purposes, because the material world, your material life will end, and you can't control every aspect of that. And no matter how much wealth you store up, that doesn't necessarily bring you happiness. And in fact, usually it leads to the opposite. So what you should do is actually use your time, your energy, your resources, your love for things that are actually productive, that are good from a moral perspective. And that is the route that you should choose. And this does tie in with the cycle of the material versus the mystical, materialism versus spirituality, and the material systems of our world have shown to be corrupted, even the religious ones. And that is why I bring up the example of the modern church. There are plenty of corruptions that have come into play in these material systems, and that is why, largely, people are looking to the more spiritual aspects of things. Plus, we have just the general cycles and patterns and things that I've already discussed many times that I won't repeat, but uh, it's still this idea of materialism versus spirituality. And I think that's kind of what got us into the next topic of money. Vin specifically said, God doesn't care about money, which... 
in general is true. Generally, that is a true statement. God does not care about money. That's not, again, what your focus should be on. It's don't build your treasure here on earth. This same mentality. Uh, But it should be specified that when money becomes an idol, when money becomes a tool for corruption or a replacement for spiritual aspects and spiritual goals, which is what you should be striving for, when money becomes tied to these things, then God is clearly against it. That is why in the Bible it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not that money is the root of all evil. It is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Because if you love money, then obviously money has been put in a position that it should not be in. And that is that has a corrupting influence on you. And so that is not a good thing. To reiterate this point from the opposite perspective, on the positive side, sometimes God cares about money in a positive way. There are times when wealth is praised. When wealth is given away, for example, that is often praised. Acts of charity are praised. The story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan could not have paid the medical bills of the person that had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road if he was broke. If that Samaritan had no money, then there's only so much he could have done on his own. No matter how good his heart was and how good his intentions were, money was something that was required to take him to an inn and pay for his stay and pay for supplies and all of these different things. So money is definitely something that can be a good thing, even from a more spiritual or mystical perspective. Money itself is is not necessarily only a part of the material world. There are immaterial aspects. And flipping it back around to the negative side, that's what Vin and I talked about when we talk about the magic associated with the monetary system and money in general. That's it. Money is not just material. There are multiple layers here. It depends on the context. And so, The next part that Venn talks about is the idea of render unto Caesar. There is a story where some people come to Jesus and their goal is to trick him because they're trying to get him arrested. They're trying to get him killed. And they are having a hard time finding fault and finding reason for him to be arrested and for him to be killed. And one of the ways that they try to trick him over and over again is by posing certain questions and and things like this to him to see if they can trap him verbally. And uh, as you can guess, it never really works out for them. But one of these examples is when someone comes up to Jesus and asks him if they should pay the Roman tax. And this is kind of a trick question, because if Jesus says yes, then he is supporting Rome, and that doesn't really go along with a lot of the teachings. It kind of takes him out of the running of being a political leader, which a lot of people saw the Messiah. Um, There's two versions of the Messiah, according to the Jews, especially at the time. There was a Messiah that was the suffering servant, and a Messiah that was going to be the warrior that was going to rescue 
Israel and break them away from the bondage of Rome. And that's what a lot of people thought Jesus was. And so if he said, oh, pay your taxes to Rome, you should submit to Rome, then he no longer would be fitting that role of overthrowing Rome. And so there are, there are many different layers and many different reasons why it's a trick question, but, but that's part of it if he said yes. And another part of it was that if he said no, then that is clear grounds to get him arrested and executed by Rome because he is telling people and inciting people not to pay their taxes and Rome will not suffer that. And so there really is no good answer. So what Jesus says is, show me a coin that you would use to pay these taxes. And a coin is shown and he asks, whose image is on that coin? And the image is that of Caesar's. And so Jesus replies, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. And the conversation goes no further. And so part of this idea is one that I've talked about before. If you think back on the idea of temples and idols, and I talked about how the idol was the image of the God, that this principle applies here very well, too, where you have an image. An image always marks property. It marks possession of things. We are said to be made in the image of God, and we are to be used to further his kingdom, the kingdom of light. And on the contrary, when this coin is shown and it is marked with the image of Caesar, and depending on the coin, we don't know for sure, but a lot of the coinage of the time did say Caesar is Lord, and that phrase does mean that there is some sort of divine connection between Caesar and the divine world. At times, the rulers claimed to be divine. At times, they claimed to have connections to the divine. At times, they were just to have equal authority on their subjects as the divine. But regardless of what level that is looked at, it all runs contrary to what the Bible, the Old Testament at the time, had taught that people should be following. And it always points to the fact that Caesar, as a man, is the one that is in charge of things, and that everything that has Caesar's image on it, and also people were required to say the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And so even though that's not an image sort of thing, that is a phrase that they would say, the citizens are in a sense property of Caesar as well. And that money, all the Roman money, is the property of Caesar, of that Lord. And so you have that marked with the image of Caesar. The purpose of this coin is to be used for the kingdom of man. That is its purpose. And so it has an opposite purpose of those who are created in the image of God. And this is something that the people in the crowd where Jesus was talking, they would have clearly gotten this reference because they were steeped in the Old Testament and in this symbolism and in this theology. So this would have been very obvious to him, to them what he was saying, because he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, obviously that coin is Caesar's. It's his property. It has his image on it. That is very clear. Caesar is the one that runs this economic system where that money is used. So that's a uh, 
kind of a mute point. But the next phrase is render unto God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Well, if you believe in the God of the Old Testament, then what is God's is everything. God created everything. And so everything belongs to God. But most importantly, what belongs to God is where he placed his image. And his image is man. And so most importantly, man belongs to God. So give your money to the state if they require it and they ask of it. You don't worry about material wealth, but give your life. Give everything else about you to God. And so you are completely dedicated to this belief system and you become a disciple. You become a representative like I had talked about earlier. So this is kind of what's going on here. When you look at different monetary systems, the system that has clear economic structure and centralized planning, that is a system that is going to be dominated by a state. That would be typical state monetary systems like we see today. Then when you think of the concept like from uh, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, his idea of the invisible hand, or when you think of the concept of spontaneous order, these are more immaterial controls that are actual and factual. You can show that they do exist and they do work. So they're mystical, but not made up. And uh, that is the other side of things. And that is not the state. That would be the realm of, in this example, at least God. And so the kingdom of God would be one that is focused on the invisible hand on spontaneous order, whereas the kingdom of man would be focused on centralized planning and controlling the economy. So look at the Church of Woke. What is the Church of Woke trying to do from a policy standpoint when they have people that are in power making policy and making dictates? They are trying to control everything. They are trying to plan everything. That is what's trying to be pushed through, and especially economically. Look at the Great Reset. That is the whole point, to restructure things so that there is maximum control and planning. And so that man can dictate how things are going to work, even in the economy and with the material world. Whereas if you look at something like agorism or libertarianism or a true free market system, these are oriented towards spontaneous order, towards the natural order of things. If we just do what is natural, take care of each other, help those that are in need, try to be productive for ourselves, for our family, for our common man, that is the idea of the other kingdom, the kingdom of light. So you have this clear difference in kingdoms. But what should ring a bell to you would be kind of the next point that comes up. I, I don't think actually we mentioned it in this part of the interview, but it will come up, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, the idea with those is that they are completely built on a totally free market, on spontaneous order and nothing else. No centralized planning, no centralized controls. And again, caveat here, different coins and different platforms are built in different ways. They have different governance structures. And if you need to know more about blockchain, whether it be the basics or some more detailed information and concepts, then go back to the blockchain series that I did back in season one. I did a whole series on that that covered lots of different aspects. And it's especially applicable 
applicable today. There's a big thing about NFTs going around, tokenization. I did a whole episode where I talked about that kind of stuff way back then. And it's very relevant to modern things going on today in that world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. But back to the point, if you are using an alternative currency, something like Bitcoin or some other alternative currencies, more probably privacy-oriented alternative currencies is what I would vote for. Uh, something like Monero, for example. I'll use that as my example. So if you're using Monero, then you're not using something that has the image of the state on it. If you pull out a dollar, that has the image of the state on it. If I pull out an American fiat dollar, there is someone's face on it. There is the name United States government on it. It has the image printed there. It is the property of the state. And if the state requires taxes of me, according at least to what Jesus had said previously, then I am to give that to the state. But what if I am operating in an alternative system? And that's the idea of agorism. That is the idea of alternative currencies and cryptocurrencies, at least from a pure ideology. And there is an aspect here, and I'm going to get into it in future episodes, about uh, how the blockchain world and cryptocurrencies will become corrupted as all material systems become at some point, like I've recently talked about. And there are some very negative aspects to blockchain and cryptocurrencies related to that stuff, but that will be for another conversation. But the idea here is a, a pretty cool one, though, where if I pull out my coin and I am asked whose image is on that coin, well, it's a Monero logo that doesn't really represent anyone or anything besides this system that has no leader and is not controlled by any one person. Oh, well, cool. So who is going to demand that of me? Whoever owns that does have the right to demand some of me, but there's no one that owns it. There's no one that runs it. I am in a completely separate system, and therefore, I am not using somebody else's property. I am not subject to somebody else's economic planning and economic control system that they're trying to set up here and have set up. And so that does give me much more freedom. It is a principle that I can start to apply in my own life to gain freedom from the state or from the corporate world or from the power structures that do exist from the church of woke. And so that is something that I find very beneficial. That does lead into the idea of authority. And uh, one question that Vin posed is, where is authority derived? Who has true authority? And he talked about that some. And so to address that aspect, you have two aspects where it's either authority from power or authority from delegation. And power is not just necessarily force. Anytime I use the word power, power can be influence. Power can be many different things. It is having control over something, having power, the power to control or influence something. That is true power. It's not just force or weapons or material power. There's more to it than that. But Either authority is derived through that power, 
or authority is delegated by somebody else. And so at the end of this section of the interview, I did mention and reference uh, Politics of Obedience. And that is a book that I would highly recommend everybody read. It was also mentioned by uh, Pete Quinones, who came on. He was the very first interview I ever did on the show. Uh, in my opinion, not my best interview. Uh, but it was the first episode of season two. And he did specifically mention that book. And I also, uh, he read some quotes out of that. And I read a quote as well. But it is a very, very solid book talking about where and how authority is derived. And one of the key points of that book is that the state has power because we give it power. That is where the power of the state comes from. And so if you withdraw your power from the state, then that would be the way to go. That's what you should be doing. And that is an option that we all have. You don't have to rebel from the state. You don't have to rise up and start a revolution or revolt. That's not what's needed. What you can do is simply withdraw that authority and that power, and in so doing, you are taking authority away. You are taking power away. So whether the authority has been derived by power or whether it has been derived by delegation, either way, that authority is being taken away in both respects. And so that is a very effective way of fighting the authority. And I want to read a fairly long section out of The Politics of Obedience. And this is by, and I will butcher the pronunciation, so I apologize, but the author's name is Etienne de la Botte. And he wrote The Politics of Obedience, Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. And this is the quote here. Poor, wretched, and stupid peoples, nations determined on your own misfortune and blind to your own good, you let yourselves be deprived before your own eyes of the best part of your revenues. Your fields are plundered, your homes robbed, your family heirlooms taken away. You live in such a way that you cannot claim a single thing as your own, and it would seem that you consider yourselves lucky to be loaned your property, your families, and your very lives." All this havoc, this misfortune, this ruin descends upon you, not from alien foes, but from the one enemy whom you yourselves render as powerful as he is, for whom you go bravely to war, for whose greatness you do not refuse to offer your own bodies unto death. Where has he acquired enough eyes to spy on you if you do not provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? The feet that trample down your cities, where does he get them if they are not your own? How does he have any power over you except through you? How would he dare assail you if he had no cooperation from you? What could he do to you if you yourselves did not connive with the thief who plunders you, if you were not accomplices of the murderer who kills you, if you were not traitors to yourselves, you sow crops in order that he might ravish them. You install and furnish your homes to give him goods to pillage. You rear your daughters that he may gratify his lust. You bring up your children in order that he may confer upon them the greatest privilege he knows to be led into his battles, to be delivered 
delivered to butchery, to be made servants of his greed and the instruments of his vengeance. You yield your bodies unto hard labor in order that he may indulge in his delights and wallow in his filthy pleasures. You weaken yourselves in order to make him stronger and the mightier to hold you in check." From all these indignities, such as the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourselves if you try, not by taking action, but merely by willing to be free. Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight and break to pieces." And that is the end of the quote. Fairly potent. And that is definitely the idea that I would ascribe to as well. Show that the emperor truly has no clothes. And we do have the power to do that, but only if we will it. And only if we are willing to act on it. We, we can't just say we believe that these things should be true. We believe that the system is corrupt. We believe that people are lording their authority over us in unjust ways. It doesn't matter if you believe that. It doesn't matter if you recognize that that's true. It doesn't matter if you can prove it. What matters is if you do something about it. Are you applying that in your life somehow? Are you a true representative of the opposite kingdom? That is what matters. And that is what is being described in the politics of obedience that from a even from a material perspective, you are providing the material goods. Who is producing things? It's not the state. It's the people. It's private enterprise. And private enterprise, when you get to a high enough level, basically just becomes part of the same power infrastructure as the state. But on a lower level, who is supplying the labor for these private enterprises as well, for the corporations? Who is supplying the eyes to see and the ears to hear? Well, you know, it used to be you're ratting out your neighbor, and that actually is happening a lot more with COVID going on. But in addition to that, who are the ones that are placing these surveillance devices in their own homes, on their own doorsteps, watching their own neighborhoods? It's you. You're the ones doing it. And so you are the problem. And so if you choose to withdraw your support, to take action based on your belief system, then that can truly make a difference. And that is where Vin's examples come into play here. He mentioned Gandhi. He mentioned the Troubles. And these were examples not of physical rebellion, not of material resistance, but of incorporating the immaterial, of withdrawing their support, of taking a stand based on their belief systems, then said that Gandhi was seeking the most high. And I would probably phrase that a little differently. Maybe more he was acknowledging our natural rights as human beings and true morality. Yes. And where does that morality come from? Where do human beings come from if you at least subscribe to the concept of God and the Trinity? Well, they come from 
the most high. And so, yes, that is true. But um, it's more a little more indirect. But uh, there is another phrase that I said was that the church can't stand against Rome. And uh, I want to clarify that what I was saying is that from a material perspective, if the church decided to go against Rome, to not pay their taxes, to not follow the rules and regulations and laws of Rome— and they incited Rome to take action, the church could not stand against that. But that is on a material front. That is related to physical warfare. And that is why the church was so successful, because they did not take that route. They took the politics of obedience route. They took Gandhi's route. They took the route of the troubles. These are patterns. These are symbols. These are used throughout history, and they are extremely effective. And that's where the ideas that Vin and I have talked about prior, and I think Vin brings up again in this next part of the interview that I'll play next week, but we talk about the spiritual aspects. The battle is spiritual, that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual powers and principalities. Uh, it's a it's a battle of hearts and minds, it is the weaponization of propaganda. It's all about support. It's all about how you get your authority. It's all about that delegation and that immaterial power. These are the things that are the most important here. It's about legitimacy, submission. These are the battles that truly matter. These are the battles that, when won, make a huge difference in the war. These are where our focuses should be. Because the kingdom of darkness, the church of woke, whatever you want to call it, it is taking over, and it is not fighting a material battle. It is winning the hearts and minds. It is controlling the propaganda. It is censoring the truth. I do have an update on how I had been describing the rhizomatic versus arborescent aspects of the two kingdoms. And so with this, when we're talking about the Church of Woke and how that operates, and you know, because you have hopefully listened to all of these episodes, that they are acting in a rhizomatic way and what that means. But uh, I had a guy over at the house who actually helped me inoculate some mushroom logs the other day, someone part of our local agorist group. And he pointed out an idea that he had been thinking about, about how the rhizomatic concept relates to mushrooms and mycelium as well, not just root systems of plants, but mushrooms and mycelium. And I really liked that idea because it works so well. He mentioned building pressure and the decay and all these kinds of things. And I want to get into that because that ties really well with what I was just saying about how the battle is spiritual, the way that the Church of Woke is fighting this, the way that culture is changing uh, it, it elaborates more on that and ties it to the rhizomatic aspect. So the idea here might require a little bit of background information. So the way that mushrooms work, mushrooms are essentially the fruit and mycelium would be the organism. So related to the rhizome example, the mycelium is the root system. That's the organism. And it fruits mushrooms just like the rhizomatic organism would sprout sprouts. Or if you think of the forest of trees example that I had talked about previously about it being one organism, the trees are the mushrooms and the organism is the entire root system underneath that is one thing. And so the way mycelium works is it gets into, let's say a log, I'll use a log as the example, but it can grow in other mediums. But so it'll get into a log, it'll start to infest that log 
It is also a decomposer, so it'll start decomposing and eating away at that log and replacing the wood with itself, with mycelium. And the way that it works its way through the wood is through pressure. So think like a hydraulic system, and it builds up this pressure, and through the pressure, it forces its way into the wood and into cracks, and it creates a path for the fruit to then fruit out. It'll actually bust through the wood, and that is how the fruit will sprout. That's the mushrooms. Well, I really like this idea of taking over the wood, of decaying it, and the pressure that builds up, all these things, they relate really well to the idea of the kingdom of darkness and the church of woke. So if you think of an image of darkness, just imagine you are looking at a scene of some kind. You're looking in a room. You're looking out at a field. Wherever you're looking, you're looking and you're seeing things, images of lots of things around you. And then imagine that darkness closes in and darkness consumes everything. So everything is now dark. Now, all of a sudden, all those things are gone. They're not there anymore. You don't see those images. All you see is the darkness. The darkness has taken over everything else that was there. That's the idea. The mycelium takes over everything else that was there. The log does not have just pure wood all the way through it. It basically has some wood, and it's mainly a whole bunch of mycelium. That, that's what it becomes because mycelium is taken over. And as darkness creeps in, it slowly starts to take over. So if you're looking out at a field that goes for a long distance, as the dusk starts to settle in and it gets darker and darker, you start losing sight of the things that are farther away. Your clarity starts to go away of these images as the darkness starts to replace these things. Think of the Church of Woke as well. What does the Church of Woke do? Well, it starts to take over the culture. It starts to take over society, and it is replacing old value systems and belief systems with wokeness, and that's what it does. And as it does so, it completely takes it over, and those things start to fade away. Now, if you think of a log, you could have a rotten log in a forest that's just sitting there. That's going to be very easy for mycelium and mushrooms to come in and colonize and start to use. And so if you compare this with the Church of Woke, if you have people that are, I will say the term rotten logs, I'm sorry, that's a little offensive probably, but uh, we'll use that example anyway. So you have people that are like rotten logs. They, they are not very solid in their belief systems and their morality, their sense of ethics, their uh, the way they perceive spiritual things. And if they are rotten in these areas, if they're weak in these areas, they have holes in these areas, then it's a lot easier for the church of woke, for that organism, for those rhizomes, for that mycelium to infuse and colonize that individual. And then what fruits out? Like I mentioned earlier, how you judge the health of a tree is the fruit it produces. And what comes out of the mouth shows what really exists on the inside. Well, as the mushrooms start to come out, as the woke person starts to act with wokeness, then that shows that they are part of the church of woke and they will reveal what they believe and what they follow on the inside. And it will show that they have been completely colonized. And again, that's a lot easier when you have a rotten log that's empty. So if you look at the parties of 
America, of the United States, you have the Democrat Party. And with the Democrats, that would be the easiest one because they follow the more uh, liberal, postmodern ideology of there is no such thing as morality, truth is relative. They're not very solid in these things. They aren't necessarily religious in any sort of concrete way. And so, Obviously, that would be the easiest party to take over, to colonize, and get to produce your fruit. Well, that has largely happened. Look at how woke the Democrats are getting. Now, as soon as the old guard comes out, which I would say Biden's probably one of the last vestiges. You have Biden, Pelosi, you have some of that old crowd that are still there. They will get pushed out. And you can mark my words on that. That's the next step. At first, they had to get rid of the anti-establishment and conservative Republicans, the Tea Party libertarian approach. And that was done away with, in my opinion, with Trump, even though he didn't truly represent any of those things in the public's mind, their perception that has been discredited. Now, the the old guard Democrats will be discredited, and that will be the last bit of the log that will get consumed as the Church of Woke is starting to fruit, and you start seeing the fruit of the Church of Woke. And some of that is coming from the old guard Democrats, showing that they are becoming colonized. And so that's one example. Now, what if you have a branch that falls off a tree that was a live tree, healthy branch, it breaks off and it falls to the ground? That is very difficult for mushrooms for mycelium to colonize and to take over because it's fresh wood, it's hardwood. And so that's much more difficult to start to t get a foothold in there. And so an example would be when I inoculate mushroom logs, it's a project I've been doing and it's getting a little out of hand here because there's so many, but what you do is you take fresh hardwood logs, you drill holes in them, you insert mycelium mixed with sawdust or grain or other mediums into these holes, you seal them off with wax, and then you basically stack them up in the shade. And then it will start to colonize and it will eventually produce. And that's the simplified version of how you do it. But the idea here is that you basically just have mycelium inserted in a few drill holes throughout the log. And over time, that mycelium spreads and it ends up connecting to be one organism and it will eventually colonize that entire log, even though it is a fresh hardwood log. So it is more difficult for mushrooms and mycelium to colonize a fresh log, but that is actually kind of the ideal environment for them because they are able to feed on the entire log and have all of that food all for themselves. And so that's the ideal way to grow mushrooms as well is to do that. And so in our example here, you have the kingdom of darkness or the church of woke. That would be the empty rotten log. Then you have the fresh fallen log. And I would personally associate that with atheism. And so with this, these are people that are not currently infested or colonized with a spiritual belief, with hard, concrete convictions about morality and religion and these kinds of things. Now, in a way they do, but uh, just follow me here. So the idea is that you have somebody that might be fairly strong. They might be fairly resistant to the ideas of the Church of Woke. They have maybe a, their own sense of morality, of ethics, and they might feel pretty strongly about these things. And so 
in a way, they do have a belief system. They do have a sense of morality. They do have a sense of ethics, which is why they are not a rotten log. They are a fresh log, uncolonized and fresh. But again, all that it takes is time as the mycelium slowly starts to expand and invade as the spores land on the outside and they start to colonize that log because those ideologies, those ethics, that sense of morality, it's not truly, and I'm saying generally and typically, it is not truly grounded on something concrete. So if you compare this to a religion, they don't have that same groundwork, that same framework, that same foundation as a religious person has for their belief system. And so their beliefs will change. They will evolve over time. And that's part of that colonization process. And so that is, in my opinion, not a very effective defense. Just being a fresh log and not being rotten is not necessarily a an effective resistance to the mycelium, to the Church of Woke. And so the third example would be a rotten log that is already colonized by a different organism, by a different mycelium, by a different strand of mushrooms. Well, if a log is completely colonized already, and this can be whether it's rotten or whether it's fresh, doesn't really matter. If it's colonized, then it is extremely difficult for another species to come and enter and infect and colonize because there's already one there. It will not be able to outcompete one that is already established. And that would be my example of someone that does have a concrete religion and concrete spiritual beliefs. They do have that sense of ethics and morality, a belief system, an ideology that is grounded on something solid. They have built their house on rock, not sand. And so with this, they have that defense because they're not empty, because they have something there that is concrete, that is not going away, that is living, that is fruiting. And this is a good protection against getting infected and colonized by a different mycelium because it is actively fighting it, and it's fighting it on that same level. So we can say it's fighting it on a rhizomatic level because this would be a rhizomatic infestation that would come into play. And so getting back to the point I was making before this analogy, the battle is spiritual. The Church of Woke is fighting a mystical, an immaterial, a rhizomatic battle here. That is what the war is. It's not material. And so with this, we need defenses. And I've talked about this before, about the armor of God, the spiritual defenses. And Van has talked about similar things as well. And so that is the idea of being colonized with the kingdom of light. If light is in existence, in a room, in a space, outside, whatever, darkness cannot infest it. Darkness cannot take it over. It's just not possible. And all it takes is a small amount of light, and it can shine on things and totally dispel the darkness. And so you cannot have darkness when you are in a situation that is full of light. And so if you yourself are full of light, if you are part of the kingdom of light, and that is what you are infested and colonized with, if that is your rhizomatic layer, your foundation, your organism that you are a part of, then 
you have some very effective defenses against the darkness. And that's how all of these analogies really tie together, and I think they tie together very well. But that also brings us to the end of the part of the interview that I played last time, or time before last, and so that will end this elaboration episode. And next time, I will play part four of the Venermani interview. That is the final part of the interview. He gets into more spirituality, some talk about prayer, and some other aspects that are very interesting and relevant to this whole conversation. And then I'll do some elaboration on that, and that will actually wrap up the Dim Age series. So we're actually getting near the end of this, and I have already done an interview that will play after this with somebody that has connections with, if I remember right, the State Department, the CIA, uh, lots of kind of lofty titles and backgrounds and a resume. And they talk as well about historical patterns and cycles. And he has also written about the Church of Woke. And he wrote about all this stuff years ago. One article he sent me to review was from, I think, 10 years ago or so. And so it's somebody else that is on the same train of thought, but is looking at it from less of a spiritual perspective and more materially, more of a concrete view of these types of things. And so I think that will be good to pose in juxtaposition to the more spiritual mystical angle that Ben focuses on and that therefore I have been focusing on in the elaborations of his talk and that interview. And so we'll get into that more concrete look. And then I do have some plans for kind of summarizing, getting even more concrete, even more ground level before getting into season three, talking about, well, what do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we progress this kingdom? How do we start a movement that's effective? And how do we fight the Church of Woke with a movement of agorism, with the kingdom of light? How does this work? And that's where season three will come into play. So that's what you can look forward to. And that's about all I have. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for any new reviews and ratings. Thank you if you have subscribed to support on Patreon or Subscribestar. I haven't seen anybody new, but you know, I haven't looked today, so you never know. So thank you all very much for all of your support of all kinds. Thank you for listening. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.